You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. First Corinthians 12. And before we do that, I just want to give you some facts about the number 50, because 50 is an important number this morning. 50 is uh, important for a lot of different reasons, because in Orthodox Judaism, and according to the Old Testament, 50 is the number for the Jubilee period. In Kabbalah, which is a form of New Age Judaism, there are 50 gates of wisdom and 50 gates of impurity. 50 is the smallest number that can be written as the sum of two squares in two ways. I have no idea what that means, but I'm sure Clifton Bell does. Um, 50 is the score on the center of a dartboard. I'm very familiar with that. 50 is the golden, golden wedding anniversary. The ant can lift up to 50 times its weight. Part of the nickname of the formerly famous rapper is 50, if we all know, the beloved 50 Cent. Um, notice I said formerly famous. Uh, the speed limit of Australian roads with unspecified speed limits would be the number 50. Uh, Noah's Ark was 50 cubits in width. Moses received 10 commandments of the Old Covenant 50 days after the exile of Egypt. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, or spent 40, he did that too, but he spent 40 days on earth after his resurrection. Then 10 days later on Pentecost, the Spirit came upon the disciples and the new covenant was preached. Pentecost in Greek means the 50th day, which is held on the 50th day after Passover. 50 is the number of minutes that Jason Thornton preached last time. Um, okay, so, so two minutes less than. <laughs> I, <laughs> That's right. That's right. If you count the introduction, I'm sure it was 50. Art normally deletes that from the uh, podcast for all of our sakes, primarily for mine. Um, 50 is uh, eight, well, about, about 10 more minutes, well, about actually eight more minutes than I preached last week. Uh, 50 is 20 uh, more uh, minutes than I hope to preach today, and, and 50 is 40 more minutes uh, that Justin Holly can keep up with on a sermon. So we're in, we're in pretty good shape. Um, so, yeah, 50. 50. 51 another commands in the scriptures. 51 another commands. I wanted to list them for you here. Um, I'm sure you can read that. Uh, I wanted to put it all in one slide uh, to, to illustrate that this is, a, this is a way of life, this one another thing. Um, 50 times, over 50 times. I actually think the number is 56. It depends on how you interpret some of the, some of the commands. But I, I know you can't read that, so I just want to give us some. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in kinship love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Instruct one another. Have equal concern for one another. Submit to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. Serve one another in love. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why we do what we do here. In humility, consider one another better than yourself. Bear with one another. Make your love increase and overflow for one another. See, the interesting thing about our faith is these are commands. Again, these aren't suggestions. This is a way of life that Christianity requires. But it is not a way of life that Christianity often promotes. It's 
Sometimes it's not a way of life that churches cultivate. I'm convinced personally, based on my vocation, that this is not a way of life churches cultivate. Therefore, Christians are let off the hook because this is just harder. It's harder to do this. It's hard to serve one another in love when we want to be served all the time. It's hard to forgive one another when we uh, wrong one another and we'd rather just leave. It's hard to live into the one another commands. But the fact of the matter is, if we have a bigger picture in our heads as to why this is necessary, why this is critical, then maybe living into this life together would make more sense. Maybe keeping the one another commands would be less a suggestion and more an ethic that we actually attain, more, more a way of life that we actually pursue and not let just kind of come to us, but pursue. So Paul, when he writes his church in Corinth, Corinth is a divided church. Corinth is divided over lots of different issues. They're divided over who's the better preacher, Apollos or Peter. Apollos was a rhetoric, was a rhetorician. He was a well-trained eloquence of speaking based on his ethnicity and his own schooling. No doubt Apollos was a better speaker than Peter. No doubt Peter was edgy. Um, but nonetheless, people, people had their choices, and so they were arguing over that. People in the Corinthian church were also arguing who had the better spiritual gifts. Remember that? Like some people thought they were better than others or more more spiritual than others or more full of the gospel or full of the spirit than others because they manifested it in various different gifts. They were also arguing over the notion of resurrection, which is interesting. They weren't just arguing over when it happened, even though they were arguing over when it happened. Some were even arguing over if it did happen, which is kind of a non-negotiable in Christianity, right? Like if you don't believe in resurrection, you kind of creep with the whole faith thing, which Paul is the one who gives us that point of view in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, man, if we're doing what we're doing and we don't believe in resurrection, we are the most pitiable of peoples. Like, that's what he says. That's, that's pretty critical. They're also arguing over uh, the rich and the poor. Like, the, the, the people who are more the haves in Corinthian society are getting fed up with the people who are more the have-nots. And they're not living into any of this together, and they're creating classism within the church as well. So there's spiritual classism. There's socioeconomic classism. There's also ethnic classism because now you've got the same old racial issues the racist issues of Jew and Gentile, um, the sort of a, the sort of ethnic isms that's going on there, and then they've got the male and female issues going on as well, as if somehow women aren't equal to men in this deal, um, and there's some fighting over that, which I'm going to unpack that in a minute because we make conclusions upon that issue, like forgetting that First Corinthians 12 exists. It seems. Uh, so I want to I want to read First Corinthians 12, beginning verse 12 with us. And it's going to go a while, so, so Paul chooses a metaphor. The metaphor he chooses is the body. It's a very basic metaphor, like the human body. So go with the metaphor. It's real simple. Paul alludes to it 21 times, uses it in three different letters. It's a favorite of his. Verse 12, For as the body is one and has many parts, and all parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, he's tackling the ethnic and the economic issue right at the beginning. We are all made to drink of one spirit. One spirit we drink from. We gain life from. So the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. In spite of this, it still belongs to the body. Paul's kind of crass sometimes. He's like, you can say what you want to say, but it's still a part of the body. You don't have to like the foot. You can wish it was bigger. You can wish its toes were prettier. 
But at the end of the day, it's still a part of the body. It might need a pedicure, but it's still a part of the body. I know, right? Because I'm not a hand, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. In spite of this, it belongs to the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. In spite of this, it still belongs to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed each one. Listen, God has placed. Who has placed? God has placed each one of the parts in one body, just as he wanted. In other words, the people who are here with us are not here because we let them in. They are here because God wants them here. We don't get to choose. And if you're here, you're meant to be. Don't wonder. You're home. We just have to learn how to act like it. Now, if they were all the same part, where would the body be? There are many parts, yet one body. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. But even more, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? Necessary. And those parts of the body that we think to be less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. Like you think about that. The parts of the body, just let me sidestep for a minute. The parts of the body that we consider less honorable, like, I'm not going to get explicit, but you know what I'm saying. We cover with greater honor. We don't cover our hands unless, you know, there was a time where we covered our hands, right? Where we cover our feet, we don't cover our faces. There are parts of our body that are just kind of plain and mundane, but the parts that, that seem to be uh, less honorable, that, that may be offensive, we cover with greater honor. That's Paul's, Paul's trying to be very explicit here to help us understand that the kingdom of God operates differently than the world. Those who are less honorable are actually ones with greater honor in the kingdom, in the church, not in society. Those who are weak are seen as beautiful and needed in the church. It's not just the powerful and the strong. It's not those who can give a lot. It's those who just give of their lots. It's not those who give the most, it's those who just give generously, whether it's a lot or a little, it's the widow's might, it's everybody matters. It's about the sacrifice, not the amount. It's about the heart, not the pedigree. It's about the commitment, not the knowledge. Everybody matters. And so he says, but our presentable parts have no need of clothing. Verse 24, instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, that the members would have the same concern for one another so that the rich wouldn't get the better seats in the house and get the bigger voice in the vote. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has a place. So none of that stuff matters. So if one member suffers, verse 26, read it with me if you have it. All the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
Now you are the body of Christ, but individual members of it. Now I just want to unpack it just a little and then I want to move through this. Okay, the first thing I get from verses what 12 through 14 is that there are many parts in the body. There's no soloist here. There's no soloist. There's no superhero. There's no champion. It's a community of people. Just as many limbs and organs make up one human body, so many of us make up one body. Christianity is meant to be experienced in the fullness of community. There's no I, there is only we. And I know that American society presses against this in every conceivable way, that somehow we think we can be a member of the church and just do what we want to do, but that is not Christianity. It's not what this means. We are, con we are connected and we are together. And if I'm going to experience the fullness of Christianity, I can do all my quiet times and prayer times and read my Bible all I want to be, but I will not develop as a mature Christian. You don't become a mature Christian without life committed in the church. That's what Paul's trying to say. You can't live into the one another texts if there's no another. The fruit of the Spirit can't produce love if there's no one testing it all the time. The fruit of the Spirit can't produce patience if there's no one in your life testing your patience. So the point of this is you can't do it on your own. You just can't do it. That's not Christianity. It's called, maybe, that may be called Americanism. It may be called rugged individualism. It may be called uh, humanism. It may be called some other ism or some other entity, but it's not Christianity. It's just not. And that's Paul's point. We got to stop acting like that, he says, because you're killing each other. You're poking yourself in the eye, and that's your brother or your sister that you're poking. There's no soloist here. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church, and we're a part of it. The church isn't about the saved. It just involves the saved. Church is about the work of God in the world, and there are many of us. And as a result of that, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 15 through 16, if you look at it, there are differences. Some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are fingers, some of us are nose, noses, some of us are a nostril, I guess. Feel sorry for the nostrils in the house. There's only two of you, so I can't be offending too many people. <laughs> Take this literal. I mean, we're all different. That's the thing. We're all different. And so he says in this text, the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you. If the feet doesn't have eyes, it trips. Right? Like that's the body metaphor. You need me whether you like it or not, and I'm sorry. But I need you. We need each other. And we need the differences. You don't need people voting like you. In the church, I know it'd be easier for you, and Lord knows for me, and for the elders, for the staff. We don't need that. We don't need people who agree on the music. We don't need people who agree. Agreement is not where unity is found. That's uniformity. Unity is found in differences. We don't need people to think like us. That doesn't work. That doesn't celebrate the beauty of the body of Christ. That doesn't test our patience and require the Holy Spirit to produce it. That doesn't create opportunities for us to bear with one another in love. We need the differences in the body of Christ. 
And not only that, when we have the differences in the body of Christ, we show the world what it looks like to be the body of Christ. Because our society builds itself upon categories of separation and belonging. If you're white and male, you belong here. If you're, if you're African American and female, you belong there. If you're rich, you belong here. If you're degreed, you belong there. If you're an artist, you belong here. We have all these ways of separating, these categories of distinction, these categories of separation and belonging. And in the kingdom of God, there's only one box to check. It's in Christ. And then it celebrates the differences. It celebrates the ethnicities. It celebrates the artists. It celebrates the engineers. It celebrates the creative. It celebrates the not creative. As if that such a thing exists, that all people are creative. It celebrates the men. It celebrates the women. It celebrates them, and it celebrates them equally. There's no classism in the kingdom, and that includes men and women. They're equal, and everybody has a role, and you're not going to be able to work around it. And I'd love to meet with anybody who struggles with this because I look back at what I used to believe and how I used to make women second-class citizens in the kingdom, and it makes me sad. The Bible doesn't teach that. Paul doesn't teach that. He gives too high an ethic, and he says too bold a thing and pushes back on too many things for us to somehow believe that God favors a gender over another, especially when you look at this text even if you just look at this text. That's not what this text is saying. As a matter of fact, let's just assume that that's what the text means. Then if a certain gender is the weaker, then it sounds to me like the weaker need to be honored more. So no matter how you read it, the text works against us if we're not careful. Because the text is calling to celebrating differences and promoting equality in the kingdom of God, where in Christ there's neither, say it with me, Jew or Rich or slave or male or for all or what? One in Christ. We drink of one spirit. That has to mean something. There's a oneness there. To say that Robin is lesser than me because I'm a man or because I'm a pastor, because I'm a minister, is like saying to my eye, it's unnecessary. Or it's of less importance than my hand. That's Paul's metaphor. I need both my eyes. We need each other. And we celebrate those differences. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 17 through 25, please. The point of this is all are needed for the health of the body. This is about being whole. This is about being complete. This is about being full together. This is about being white and black and brown and blonde and, and brunette and red-headed and gray-headed and all the different differences, all the things. This is about being old and young. This is about being rich and poor. The more diverse we are, which is not the goal, by the way. Diversity is not the end. It's a means. The differences and diversity of the means of who we are celebrates the end of what God is doing in the world when He brings all nations together under the nation of the kingdom of God. You, re, you with me? It's in there. It's in Revelation. Along with all kinds of other stuff we don't understand. But it aligns with Paul's ethic. That when, the, when people walk into a community of faith and say, what in the world are they doing together? I mean, I've met John. Do you know what John believes? I've met Robin. Do you know what Robin believes? They shouldn't be in the same room together. That gets people's attention. When they look and they see People go, what's bringing you together? And there's only one answer. It's Christ. 
we drink of the same Spirit. We may go to the different booth. We may hang out in different places. We may have different tribes and friend groups. But we drink of the same Spirit, and we're a member of the same household, and we're citizens of the same kingdom, period. That's the point. It makes us healthy. It makes us healthy. Because it requires that we live in mutual interdependence. Say interdependence. See, interdependence is different than independence. See, society pushes us toward independence, where you get to make your own choices. You get to order your own meal. You can even supersize it if you'd like, and you can replace this with that if that's what you prefer. You can customize everything in life. You can. You can customize it all. I can't think of much you can't actually customize. Everything about our society is normally about independence. Sometimes it's about codependence. Sometimes we create societies of codependence as much as we do anything else, right? But it, our society promotes independence, but the kingdom of God promotes interdependence, where we are mutually together, where we mutually submit to one another, where we aren't allowed to leave when it gets hard. Does that make sense? Like we leave when it gets hard because that's what we do everything. We do that with everything. We don't like our house, we get a new one. We don't like our spouse, we get a new one. We don't like our kids, we try to figure out how to get new ones. We try to figure these things out. We don't like our clothes, we get rid of it, we get new ones. We don't like our phone, we upgrade it to new ones. We don't like, but when it comes to Clifton and me and Lori and you and Nicole and Casey and everybody, we don't get to trade that in. This is who we are. We're not supposed to just leave when it gets hard. We stay together because that's what makes the body of Christ the body of Christ. And that changes things too. I loved when John, Michael, and Natalie, when they left us to, to stay closer to home and be a part of a community because they drove one hour each way to be a part of our family. I love what John Michael said to the church. Remember what he said about leaving the church? He said, this should be a life or death matter. That's what he said. He said, choosing and leaving a church is a life or death decision. That makes it much bigger than your preferences. And if you understand this text, I think he's right. I mean, you can get rid of me, but I'm going to be with you in glory. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how this works. Yeah, I don't know about that, sister. Like, it's a good thing God replaces all the things. Like, you can, you, we can get rid of each other, but knowing God, he's going to move us right next to one of you. He's going to be your bunkmate. I don't know if we're going to bunk mates. I don't know how all that works, right? But I mean, I, but like, I see God, you know, like doing something like that because that's, you don't, we don't get to choose. But here's the thing too. Everybody hears of great significance because that's part of what this is about too. You may look back and think you don't have anything to give. And that's a lie of the devil. You may not have as much money as others, but you have some money to give. You may not have as much time as others, but you have some time to give. You may not have as many gifts and talents as others, whatever that may mean, but you got something to give. Norma Gambrell used to lament to me all the time when I would visit her about how miserable she was that she could not get out and serve because the woman was a servant. And she used to be upset at the fact she couldn't cook as much as she used to cook. And I would remind Norma over and over again that even though she's homebound, the one thing she can do is the one thing I neglect the most. Pray. There is no greater battle to be fought than in the battlefield of prayer. And I know we undersell that. There's nothing better she could do than to fight for people in prayer because that's where change happens. There's always something to give. Everybody always has a place from the littlest 
to the oldest. Everybody is of great significance. But not only that, the cause of all of this, God has a divine plan for us. There is a divine plan for Williamsburg Christian Church. God is the one who creates communities and lets communities die on the vine. Or God's the one who grows communities. Corinthians is pretty plain that all we can do is plant, is plant and water, but God's the one who grows a church. Last I checked, God's growing this church. It's hard to see it on Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> if you'd have asked me seven years ago when we got here, to serve with you, about 150 people. Lori, about how many kids did we have seven-ish years ago? Littles. Maybe about 20. I think we had about four or five teenagers. About 150 people in the body at the time. I was looking at it the other day. If God wanted to let us die on the vine, we wouldn't be here. If you'd asked me seven years ago if this would be who we'd become, if as a result of the faithfulness of God's work in this people, that people in places we'll never meet are no longer on the street, that there are 200 kids in Kenya who woke up in a bed and an additional 94 who are cared for because of this church. If you would have told me that every holiday I would start getting text messages from members of this church asking me if I know of anybody in our church who are spending the holidays alone. If you would have told me that over the last three months, 51 meals would be delivered to people in need in our congregation alone. If you'd have asked me seven years ago if other things would have flowed out of this body, I would have had no clue. I would have probably just said, I hope God could do that in us. If you look at page 10 in your worship guide, I want to close out by going over some things. Because you're only one gathering. You don't go to both gatherings. Unless you're Glenna. Then you go to both gatherings, which is always great. So she probably has a better view. You don't see what most of us see. What our shepherds know. See, if you look at page 10, there's 130 families in our midst. This is all conservative numbers. Out of those 130 families, that makes out about 340 individuals. It's a lot of people. Out of those 340 people, when you add 50 that are college students, 36 of those 50 are involved in the connections ministry, so I'm talking about connected college students. You're pushing about 400-person church. And there's not a one of us who can read that text and say that the infant doesn't matter any more than the 80-year-old. And there's not any one of us in this church, I think, after reading that text that can say a college student doesn't matter any more than the 95-year-old. And everywhere in between. Everybody matters equally. Almost 400 people. A lot of people. Now, one of the ways the shepherds have tried to get a handle on this with the vocational ministers is we've tried to take a look and ask, how can we cultivate something more than an event? In other words, how can we be faithful as a people where we can actually obey 1 Corinthians 12? As anemically as we often may do, how do we try to do it and do it faithfully? So we took the congregation and we split it out into eight areas of ministry, if you want to say that, sort of eight areas of formation. 
One, if you look on page 10, is the worship gatherings. That's overseen by John Sprankle. And this involves more than just what happens on Sunday. This involves all the gatherings that we would have that are worship-centric without splitting hairs over the fact that worship is a life given to God. Then we have the missional communities. And if you notice, these missional communities are not small groups. We don't have a small group ministry here. We have missional communities. These missional communities are large. They ideally need to be between 12 and 15 families, around 25 to 35 people. They're beautiful. They're irritating. They're broken. They're loud. They're wonderful. They're complicated. They're life-giving. They're all of those things, and that's why they matter because those communities is where discipling can happen because that's where we can get into one another's lives and start pushing against one another's priorities. It's where we start trying to learn how to love one another's kids and take care of one another. And if you look at this, we have 43% of our church involved in missional communities. And the reality is we need more people involved in it. They study the Bible, yes. They pray together, yes. But they don't organize around Bible studies and prayer. These aren't Bible studies. They just do Bible study. They're supposed to organize around sharing in the mission of God in their neighborhoods and their networks. That's what they're really supposed to be doing. Because that's where discipling happens. That's what the Bible teaches. It didn't tell us, I mean, you study Scripture, show ourselves approved, but we have to practice what it is we study. And the problem with Christianity is we can study the Bible and win Bible bowls and be just as Christianless as anybody. Sharing in the mission of God and having it cost us something, now that's a different ballgame. Having to be in a room with a bunch of people when you're an introvert who would much rather be with two, that's a different ballgame. But welcome to Christianity. Having to get there because people are counting on you, that's a different ballgame. But welcome to Christianity. Having to put up with one another's kids, especially that kid and that kid and that kid. You raise 10 of them and you're done. Welcome to Christianity. Every one of us matter. You look at prayer and care ministry. It's where we try to care for one another. Dave and Ray oversee this. Paul and I oversee the missional communities piece. You look at family ministries. Now, you look at the family ministry for a minute, if you will. And you can read all this on your own. We have 46 children with two on the way. 46 children. And in terms of teenagers, we have 44 teenagers. That's too many. And what are we thinking? And you know, we don't throw big pizza parties and have big smoke and mirror. We don't have, and here's the thing. Here's the thing that you got to remember, church. You may not remember this, but, but if I, we did a poll, we did a poll like a couple of years ago and even a year ago, and I do it about once a year, and I ask people to raise their hands if they weren't in a church seven years ago. I'm not going to do it today because it's not a fair representation. Here's the thing about how we've grown. We haven't reached evangelical Christians who've transferred churches. That's not the majority of our growth. Our growth has come from people who were burned out and tired of church. Our growth has come from people who weren't churched, who were unchurched and dechurched. That's where our growth has come from. And that has created all kinds of beautiful, broken things, hasn't it? Like marriages that come hurting. And here's what happens. Evangelical, born-in-the-pew Christian marriages are just as messed up many times as any marriage outside of the kingdom of God. But here's what's happened in our church. When marriages outside of the kingdom of God came into our life and then came into the kingdom of God, they gave us freedom to confess our messed up stuff too. Have you noticed? 
Like, like when people were willing to confess their mess, that should be like a sermon series, right? Like confess your mess. When people were willing to confess their mess, like then it gave us permission to confess our mess. And that, when you start confessing mess, it gets messy. Like it gets messy. And when you put 400 people in a room or 400 people in a community, that's even messier. Then you put teenagers in there. And then you put all the diversity of the socioeconomic. Look, this isn't easy. We're not an easy church to love with one another, but we're easy to love because we're learning to love one another. But we don't all have our stuff together. I mean, that's the thing that makes this complicated. And if you look at these ministries, if you look at family ministries, if you look at, if you look at what we do with the seniors, if you look at what we do in community life, which by the way, if you look at community life, which is the, where, which is the area of church that I think we are the absolute and most utterly weak on, like we are weak on this, look who oversees that. I'm just saying, like, it just kind of is what it is. Like, I can't remember the last time we had a shared meal and we had to cancel the anniversary Sunday. Now, I'd much rather you blame Dave Faith. But unfortunately, as I've said many times, he rarely makes mistakes and it annoys all of us. But his name is not there. This is on me. Because it becomes harder with even our staff, with all that Dave shepherds and Garrett shepherds and Aaron shepherds and then our shepherd shepherd. And let me tell you something about our shepherds. Our shepherds don't sit on their hands and make business meeting decisions. Our shepherds are out visiting the sick. They're in homes with me, walking families through crisis at 10 o'clock at night. I've got stories for you. You don't know that because we don't publicize that. It's not right to publicize that. But you can either trust it or not. But there's no one who serves this congregation and leads who are sitting on their hands and riding the pond. Matter of fact, if you look at the ministries, they're led by members of the church, most of them. Which tells you we're not a staff-driven church. You've got the Bennetts down there trying to recruit everybody for restoration ministry. Which, by the way, see them. We have that all the time. This is an active body of Christ. We're growing. And with growth, comes greater responsibility. Almost, quote, Spider-Man. And so here's what I want to give you. I want to give you some one last piece of data that's going to seem kind of stinging. Go ahead, John. And by the way, I'm not trying to shortchange anything else. If you look at local mission and you look at recovery ministries and you look at our CR and how many lives have been changed because of that, if you look at uh, the global mission and all the different things we do, we don't have time there. And I'm going to go over this in more detail next week because that's when we're going to present some things to you, but I just wanted to give you this for your reading pleasure. I want to give you one last piece of data, though, that is, to me, very disturbing, and I don't know what the details are, so I want to be very clear. Please, 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 please hear what I'm saying. I don't know who gives. I don't know who doesn't give. I don't know how much people give. I will never know that. I don't want to know that. That is not even interesting reading for me. Ray Callsworthy, who oversees, the, who oversees principally the financial stewardship, who Dave works with as well, he knows those things. I do not know those things, but I've asked for numbers, and here's what I've received. Out of an almost 400-person congregation with all this activity, with 43% of our body involved in missional communities, with all of this growth, with the fact that we take care of one another as faithfully as we know how, 27% of this body gives 
over 80% of the offering every month. I don't know what the details are with that number. It just sounds a little off. So I don't know what you give or what you don't give. I don't know if you do or don't. Here's what I am suggesting based on what I see in 1 Corinthians 12. From giving of finances to giving of time and everything in between. It is an us thing. And it starts with you. It starts with you. It starts with me. We can change all of that. We need to. Because God has a divine plan for this church. And we have to live into it. I'm not sure what it is. But I know what he's done. And I know what he seems to be doing, and you do too. And I know who he continues to bring to us. So I know he's not done with us yet. Lives are being changed. Lives are being transformed. Raise your hand if your life is being transformed through this body. Lives are being changed. God is at work among us. It takes all of us. And every week we gather... We celebrate the bread and the cup. We celebrate the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. We celebrate the equality of the kingdom of God. We celebrate the gracious hospitality and the free welcome of the kingdom of God. And we say that you are invited to the table. And this doesn't require money. It doesn't require anything. It requires a life willing to give to the glory of God. 